Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Peter McCarthy. But before we get to this interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps uh, others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from CRB1961, who says, Fantastic! This is by far the best podcast out there for evidence-based chiropractic healthcare. Straight from the individuals doing the most current research. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for doing this. Well, thank you, CRB1961, for your your review. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Listeners of the podcast help to sponsor future episodes. Thank you for your support. You can contribute by either making a small donation on our website or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let me introduce my guest today, Dr. Peter McCarthy. Professor Peter McCarthy, PhD, full professor of clinical technology, University of South Wales in the UK, has been involved in the education of chiropractors for 30 years. He obtained his PhD in neurophysiology from the University of St. Andrews and worked in various institutes around the world. He first joined the AECC in 1989, moving in 1998 to the University of Glamorgan to help Susan King create and consolidate the first university-based chiropractic course in the UK, later becoming the Welsh Institute of Chiropractic. Holding a couple of patents, Peter has been awarded honorary fellowships from the BCA, RCC, and EAC, and research awards from the National Back Pain Association and British Association for Sport and Exercise Medicine, amongst others, even being part of a team that won a National Design Award. He has successfully supervised PhD students from a wide range of professions across medicine, including four chiropractors. Although his research publication pro profile appears eclectic, it is tied together by his overarching interest in sensory neurophysiology. He has studied the innervation of spinal structures, factors that affect spine, cervical spine function, and also performed RCTs of therapies on chronic back pain. More recently, he has been looking at measuring the sensory factors that can help predict relative discomfort when sitting or lying, as well as developing a multidisciplinary team interested in studying neck function changes in sport and developing ways of reducing the impact these changes can have. Dr. McCarthy, it's a privilege to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. I think the privilege is all mine, actually. Thank you for the invite. Uh, absolutely. So first, uh, first question I'd, I'd like to, uh, to get into is, uh, I know you've had uh, a longstanding career in both research and chiropractic education. 
Can you tell us how you became involved in the chiropractic profession and what keeps you involved these days? This question is quite easy. Um, I first basically learned about chiropractic when I was looking for a job. Um, I was working at the time at University of Bristol. I was doing some research there in the sensory nervous system. And at that time, we had our first child and the we had to find something that was a bit more permanent than simple soft money from grants. I applied for a number of positions and managed to be offered two. One of them was in London at UCL and the other one was actually at AECC in Bournemouth. Um, having been to Bournemouth and thinking about it, I decided that it was probably more appropriate to bring up a child by a beach than in a city. So I elected to go to Bournemouth. The problem there was I was coming out of an institution that considered that a form of suicide for my research and the supervisor who headed the department at the time um, decided to uh, offer me numerous other positions rather than going to this wayward little private college. I continued to basically state that I wanted to do this and being a, a rather argumentative individual I decided to cut my own and go my own way. I wanted to prove as well that I could actually continue research regardless of where I went rather than it being the end of my research career. When I arrived, they were very positive and wanted the research to help underpin their attempts to get the degree program underway and developing it to what it is today, really. And so I spent a good few years at the AECC um, helping myself and them develop. And during that time, I still had some very strong research connections around Europe. And so I spent some time at Max Planck Institutes and so on, helping friends out in these places with their research. We also developed a research lab. Um, Alan, Breen and Alan Breen at the time was uh, heading the research effort and was quite happy to have people doing research and developing ideas and trying to run with it. Very positive influence to have around. So we started and did a few things and were quite successful for a time. And of course, when uh, Sue King asked me if I'd help her with the uh, form formation of a new course in a hospital, uh, sorry, in a hospital in the university, I realized that that was an opportunity for, the, for me to then start uh, supervising PhD students, which is one of the things I wanted to do. Um, and the AECC didn't have the facility at the time. So I took the opportunity, moved across, we created a team, and um, it is now thriving on the basis of that initial start. So I've continued allowing myself to almost play with research, but the big buzz is to facilitate others. So I've been asking, I always ask students what their ideas are, what do they want to do, and then try and find a way of facilitating it which has led to me having a theme of research, which is quite, as you mentioned, eclectic. Um, I have publications across a wide range of different areas, everything from single cell studies to whole RCTs. Um, and it's quite strange because of that, trying to find a, an underpinning or, or over, overarching theme that runs with it is quite difficult on occasion. But the neurophysiology, the, the sort of understanding of the way things work tends to be the thing that ties them together. I'm still involved with the chiropractic profession, um, 
because I have a wide range of chiropractors who are very happy to work with me and develop ideas and develop challenging research concepts. And because of that, we've got some very sort of exciting stuff going on, really. Yeah, that's terrific. And I, I definitely want to get into uh, many of these publications and, and your interests. Uh, as you said, you've got a wide range of interests. Uh, you've published in a wide variety of excellent journals such as Lancet, uh, Spine, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab, Neuroscience, Journal of Neural Engineering, British Journal of Sports Medicine, so many others. Uh, so I'd like to get into some of that research uh, right now, if we could. You mentioned that you have uh, multiple themes uh, to your research, and it seems that uh, I'll just kind of lay them out here for the listeners. Uh, first theme seems to be about objectification and prediction of discomfort with uh, some emphasis on seating. And then theme two is on neck dysfunction Determination of extent, causes, and prevention in professional and elite athletes, so dealing with sport there. And then theme three is the more clinically uh, related theme, and you're looking at interaction between practitioners and patients. So let's try to discuss each of these themes if we could, uh, and maybe just uh, one or two representative publications of each. And so if we could start with the theme one, and uh, the, the probably the theme two and theme three are what most practitioners would probably want to hear about. But th uh, theme one, I think, is pretty interesting as well. Very interesting and actually has a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of clinical application. And um, so uh, theme one, again, is about uh, prediction of discomfort. And uh, can you tell us how you got into that and... It's such a wide range of journals, like ergonomics journals and, and so on and so forth. Uh, how did you get into that and what kinds of things are you looking at these days? Mm. It is, it's just, again, another strange story. Um, when we first arrived at the University of South Wales, or Glamorgan as it was then, um, I was trying to teach people in one class, research class, variability in data acquisition. And so I just picked up a couple of ear thermometers and gave them to two nurses who said they could do the measurement who were on the course. And I said, OK, as people come through here, this into the lab, what we'll do is you'll measure them and you'll measure sequentially and we'll randomize it so that you measure first on one occasion, you measure first on a, a different occasion. And the students did this and they were really, really good. And I thought, well, we'll show a bit of variability, but I didn't expect to see anything exciting until we got the data. And we found out that, yes, they were perfectly matched data sets, apart from the fact that one machine was reading 0.5 of a degree higher than the other. So we basically realized that the ear thermometers were not reading the temperature they were supposed to read. They were being, in a sense, fudged. Um, so I decided to present the data. So we presented it to a thermography meeting as we were setting up a thermography um, research group at the time. And members of the National Physical Laboratories were present and uh, commented that these devices were not traceably calibrated. I didn't understand what that meant, but they were quite happy to give me a PhD student to look into this problem more seriously. So I 
of my first PhD student paid for by the National Physical Laboratories. And we did some research on this. While the student was working, um, a chiropractor who was at the university at the time, Vince Cascioli, who's now at Murdoch, um, was interested in another aspect, which was the whole concept of what happens when you sit down for a long time. Slowly but surely, these two areas of research merged together because we started to look at temperature, the thermography, and calibration, and how you do things properly. And then we started to ask the question, when you sit down, what determines when you want to move? What determines not only the effects of long-term sitting, but also how you do things or why you do things based upon the signals you don't always consciously become aware of? Because people tend to move without realizing they're moving when they've been sitting down for a time. So slowly over time, we developed this concept and then we managed to get a reasonably large grant to look at this. And Vince started his PhD. We started to look at putting sensors underneath people. And we didn't just stop with uh, thermal sensors. We started to put humidity sensors and we started to look more at fidgeting and moving. Vince was very interested in the whole concept of fidgeting. Um, and as he's listening to this, he's probably wondering if I'm going to say anything about the fact he never stops moving, which is one of those <laughs> reasons why we always wondered what happens and what triggers a person's movement when they're sitting down for a long time. So we actually started to look carefully at this whole problem. And since that point, we've published quite a few uh, papers, as you say, in, in a variety of different journals, including tissue viability journals, because... What happens when a person's sensory system breaks down is that they don't get those signals saying move. And when you don't get the signals to say some tissue damage is occurring, you sit there for longer and slowly but surely you'll get problems with skin breakdown. So we're looking at initially looking at this sort of issue of what makes you move and the discomfort associated with it. But now that's become slightly further down the line. We're looking at how we can predict when a person should move. And we've been working with uh, a colleague in China, Shofu Liu, is, who essentially was originally a postdoc of mine in the UK. He's a wizard with electronics and maths computing. So we've been developing with him a way of looking at the seat interface between people and the seat. We now have a mapping system that we've recently published to allow us to do uh, a map of temperature and we're looking currently at a map of humidity between the person and the seat. And we've got predictive algorithms that we've built over time that allow us to predict and say, in 15 minutes, you will need to move. So we're now getting to the point where we're producing something that may even impact on people in wheelchairs and other devices where they have a problem with recognizing when they're at risk of damage. So that particular area is one that we just plodded away in the background a number of years Vince got his PhD a good few years ago, and we've been continuing doing this. And in the meantime, I've had another PhD student looking at the uh, how well the humidity sensors work. And she's already she's finished her work as well. So we've got this raft of information now, and we've got a method for tying it all together. And so the next part of it is application. And we're currently looking at applying this to clinical cases. I think we're under, underway over to some extent in China at the moment. 
So that's quite an exciting area, really. But it's involved strange experiments. Um, we did an experiment on one occasion, long-term sitting one, where we essentially had a whole range of seats and produced videos for students to watch while they were taking part in this experiment. We fed them, allowed them to go to the toilet and so on, just to get data about what happens over a long period of time. We then measured them at the beginning with respect to what they could do in the way of movement, and we measured them at the end. It was quite exciting. So the students enjoyed it. We were all sort of falling asleep at the end because it was a very long time. <laughs> That's terrific. Um, okay, uh, so let's go ahead and talk about the neck dysfunction and sport theme. Uh, I wonder if you could guide me through uh, that theme, what got you interested in that, and then maybe talk about one or two studies uh, in regards to that. Okay. Um uh, again, strange stories of people coming to ask questions. Uh, there were two coincidental aspects to this. First one, a colleague is now in um, uh, New Zealand, Sally Lark, was interested in doing some work with rugby people, rugby players, based upon the neck problems and seeing if we could actually do some measurements. So she wanted to measure force. I was sort of against force measurements because I thought that's going to be difficult, especially in rugby players. They'll pull the ceiling down or something equivalent. And so <laughs> I thought, what else could we do? I'd previously done some work at the ACC with students looking at an equivalent of a CROM. And I thought, well, we could always look at neck range of motion. Uh, it took me a while to sell Sally on this particular thing because she was quite adamant about her. So we hybridized and we managed to get in contact with a couple of good rugby clubs, uh, Bath and uh, Northampton Saints and they were happy to have us use their players and monitor them over a few years. That's how we got, that's how the, the rugby aspect came into it. Because rugby is a contact sport. And it's a very sort of damaging sport. When you look at the players, they don't tend to do much, or they, in those days, didn't really tend to do much in the way of protecting the neck. Um, the American football aspect was quite simple. These guys wear helmets, they wear protection. So, are they, they, but they play a contact sport. So does the protection work? What's their neck like? And also we were looking at the time at uh, functional capacity of the neck. So can they actually, how precisely can they move their head? Um, have they got better precision over that? So we compared with a group of equivalent uh, rugby players and we saw that their neck function generally was better. Um, but their precision and accuracy at uh, replacing the head in a particular position without the helmet was about the same as the rugby guys. Then we put the helmets on and did the same thing again. So we wanted to see if the helmet affected, and we expected that would reduce their abilities across the board. As it was, it caused this fantastic change where you see the American football players actually gain an extra helping hand when they've got the helmet on with respect to acuity and repositioning. So they get better at repositioning, whereas the rugby guys haven't got that feedback. They don't really understand the feedback if they get it, and so they don't use it. And so they're about the same, slightly worse. So we then realized that playing with a helmet on, if they're living in that helmet, so to speak, it gives them an extra level of, of sensory input, which they can then use for repositioning. So they're more accurate in, in their positioning of the head and repositioning of the head with the helmet. And that was, that was a, as an interesting thing that made me think, well, maybe not all of sport is bad and that uh, people might think that having these helmets is a bad thing, but sometimes they can give a person a bit more control, a bit more feedback. And so that, that was quite interesting, really, from that perspective. Yeah, and that's we were a, quite surprised. 
Yeah. Sorry. That's carry a, on. No, no, that's a, I mean, that was a really interesting study that that study was published in chiropractic manual therapies, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose I had to publish it in there because I'm one of the editors. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. I see. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's the advert done. Um, <laughs> I hope you're listening, Bruce. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, but that whole area, we've been, I was, because of some of that work on what's known as cervicocephalic kinesthesia, I was asked to um, go and have a look at uh, the way that uh, training affected um, a Winter Olympics team, uh, or at least as a, a squad that was training for that sort of activity, um, and to look at the effects that the training protocol has on neck over time and that was another interesting thing because it gave us an insight into what happens when people are actually sliding around and vibrating their head and the neck and so on if the person's got lots of dysfunction it sounds stupid this i mean it's going to sound really really obvious but if the person's got lots of dysfunction the chances are they'll get they'll injure them and that may be something that sounds self-evident but believe it or not it's something that's not picked up even at top level sport so it's quite interesting yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and, you know, one of the things, uh, as you mentioned, it seems obvious, but the problem is there's not a whole lot of literature on it. So what no. what we do in the clinic and what we think, you know, we make a lot of assumptions. Uh, and without the data, it's hard, it's hard to say one way or the other. Uh, this you know. is it. I mean, at the moment, we're trying to write up a, a raft of stuff. We've been gathering data for a couple of years now, a good few years. And uh, I'm, I'm, I tend to be, I don't tend to publish straight away. I like to test an idea almost to destruction. It's got to get through my, I've got to persuade myself that it's real before I publish it. Because if I don't believe it myself, I can't really write it in any degree that would be persuasive to others. So we've sat on data because sometimes it's been almost too good to be believed. And so I've tested it two or three times in addition just to make sure. We're then certain that when we produce something, it will be a reasonable, it will be reasonably useful. I mean, the neck work we were doing with rugby, uh, the aim is eventually we've identified a problem. <clears throat> we've identified the fact that in the off season they don't recover. So, is there a way of preventing it? And um, with Bianca Zitzman, my sort of initially research assistant, but now colleague, she's now at the university. We've been looking over a period of five years at the issue of trying to develop a methodology to prevent people or make it less likely they'll get injured. Um, and one of those areas that we've been quite successful in is this net, pre, we call it prehabilitation. It's great because most rugby players, most players don't actually do much in the way of neck work, whereas they know about legs, know about arms. When it comes to the neck, it's sort of a strange place for many people. And so they don't really do anything to protect it. Yeah. Take very much. So we're we're trying to develop these now. We're in the middle. We we presented to the International Olympic Commission in Monaco when they did a sort of a sports injury uh, conference, and it was met with really good reviews. Uh, so much so that World Rugby are looking to us to actually try and establish something in the way of that area. It's a relationship that's a bit woolly, but there's not been any real empirical research in that area, but. It's an area that needs to be challenged a bit more, and we need to develop protocols which can actually allow that to be that challenge to be raised. Really, 
But it's really quite exciting. The whole area of sport, we're now into a raft of different sports. We're working with um, working with Niall Tilly in, in Ireland, looking at both the Northern, and, uh, Northern Irish and uh, Irish boxers. Uh, they're sort of Olympic hopefuls and Commonwealth Games hopefuls. And we're also working with uh, the Helmanen family in Finland, looking at ice hockey uh, with some of the top teams in Finland, which are very top. And uh, we're looking at this whole issue of how can you protect the neck? How can you actually monitor when a person's got problems? And I'm currently working with some electronics guys to develop a series of sensors and apps to go with it to allow us to measure when a person gets a problem and the, the size of that problem and then to follow them afterwards to look to see exactly what happens. It's, it's, it's early days, but I think there's a lot, lots of capacity and capability in that area in an exciting field. It's moving forward across a range of chiropractors across a range of countries and that's the really exciting thing is i'm working with people that i've known for a while and some people i've only just met and they're people who are essentially they've got passion for chiropractic passion for sport in particular areas and they want to try and marry the two together and they want to try and study and, and interact but they don't want to appear threatening to the physio or the physiotherapist or the physiologist or whatever is playing there they want to actually try to engage and work with them and the research angle is a really good one because it allows you to go into an environment and find the problem and then try to help people come to a way through that problem it's finding answers to questions that we don't even know yet oh yeah no i mean the, the whole time uh you were talking in fact about many of these studies i i was thinking to myself oh wouldn't it be amazing uh, to study chiropractic's effect on, you know, the dysfunction, the, you know, corrective exercises, whatever you want to call it these days. It's, it's so difficult because we, when we've done studies, we did a study with a rugby team. But basically what we did was uh, Bianca worked for the team for a time and we, we brought this protocol and see if it would work. And the team engaged, but we also had a chiropractor there at the same time. who was looking after the necks and the rest of the body. So... We have to try and tease out any effect and say, is it the protocol? Is it the chiropractor? Is it the two together that's that's creating some sort of uh, an additional effect? Often each one will have an effect, but you know what it's like. You, you're a chiropractor, you manipulate somebody, they go out from your office, they come back and you manipulate them again. What they're doing in the two between the two could actually be causing the problem. So you've got to give them guidance as to things they can do while they're outside to help you and help progress the repair. And I think that's the thing we're trying to do now is we're trying to develop something that fits in with the normal protocols that these people use so that it can actually facilitate the, the short-term, in a sense, chiropractic intervention and create a long-term effect, which is not only to repair a problem, but also prevent it happening again. And that's the really important thing. Yeah. Terrific. Well, that's a great segue into uh, the next theme. Actually, it kind of is all blending now, which is terrific. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the uh, this the next theme is the clinical theme uh, to your work. And it, it, you know, each of the individual studies is very interesting, uh, what you've uh, come to and a, a vast, uh, again, uh, amount of difference between studies, everything from stroke to to RCTs on back pain. So can you tell us uh, about this work and, and maybe some of the current studies you're, you're looking at now? Mm. 
Um, again, this is one of those opportunistic things. Um, occasionally, people report things to me. And when they report them to me, I then say, wow, that's fantastic. Have you thought about this? And so I've had really, I've been really fortunate to, to know a number of people who are quite, they're quite aware of what's going on. And because they're aware, they, they say, this is a bit strange or this is interesting. And by saying that, I then sort of use my skills to put papers together and so on, put publications together to help them actually build what they've done into something that's a bit more lasting and get the word out there, really. Um, the stroke issue was, was a phenomenal, for, phenomenally fortunate event. And Annabelle Keir, uh, working at the university, had a patient in her own clinic who essentially uh, went along to have a manipulation, had a bit of a headache, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she wanted to be certain, because it didn't feel quite right. She wanted to be certain. He'd had x-rays recently, so she wanted to see the x-rays just to make sure there was nothing going on. So she waited. She didn't do anything. He brought the x-rays round, dropped them off. He couldn't stay and then went off again. She looked at the x-rays and went, looks okay. Next time I see him, I'll bring him in. I'll manipulate. However, that never happened. He ended up, when she phoned up to tell him to come in, she got hold of his wife and his wife said, no, he's going to hospital. He's had a stroke. So this was the thing which actually made me start looking at this whole stroke issue from a different perspective. And I said, the really important thing about this is it says to me that we have an association. We have people who have a stroke in progress or the likelihood of a stroke turning up to a chiropractor with my head hurts, I've got a bit of a headache or I've got a bit of a neck problem. The chiropractor goes, that looks about okay, crack. And then the person goes away as the stroke progresses or for whatever reason the stroke becomes more manifest the person goes to hospital and the first thing the neurologist says have you been to a chiropractor so you're left with a situation where you have an association temporal association people with headache go see chiropractors converting into a more sort of insidious form of connection you've got a stroke in progress symptoms lead you to a chiropractor and so that i tried to raise that um to a, a greater audience, hoping people would come forward with, with, with cases similar to this. And we had a number of cases. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say, people's notes weren't there. They didn't care. There was always problems with, with verifying the, the anecdotes we were getting about people who had similar sort of events in their particular clinic. And we had some quite, quite good ones, really. They were perfect. But the problem with it was always verification. And we tried, and, but we've never really got large enough numbers of these cases to be useful and produce as a case series. Um, but at least we led the way by saying, instead of it being, instead of a defensive approach from the profession, we could actually turn it around the other way and say, there may be um, a link, but the link could be because people come to chiropractors with a stroke in progress or with a likelihood of a stroke occurring with the prodrome elements. And the chiropractor, unsuspecting of this, manipulates. And then the question is asked at the other side, have you been to see a chiropractor? I mean, the neurologist could easily say, have you had a cup of coffee in the last two days? And the answer would probably be yes as well. So it's poor science that's led us into this position. And I think the only way out of it, to some extent, is good science. Um, there has been a publication recently which has tended to come down on the side of, of chiropractic that was 
written by neurologists. I've not been able to see the full paper yet, but it does sound very positive. And it's saying essentially the same thing. Um, this is a relationship which is happening because people actually with a headache and a neck pain don't know any better. They'll go and see a chiropractor. So that, that in a sense, was the, is the sort of thing I tend to look for in cases. Uh, we had another case with synovial cyst where the person was on a surgery list and um, this person was treated conservatively in the, in the Wyok patient clinic. Um, and the pain went away, all the symptomatology went away. And the comment that came from people was, oh, you burst a cyst or something like that. And I said, look, where's the evidence? There isn't any. So we have a good relationship with a, a mobile MRI supplied by a charity uh, that I brought to the university years and years ago. And um, I asked the person who runs that particular thing, could we have uh, a series done on this patient uh, for educational research purposes? They said yes. So they, we put this person through a second MRI. We compared it with the first one. There was no difference really in the size of the synovial cyst. It was in the same place doing the same thing. But the person's wow. symptoms had gone. So has, we were has, in a situation there to say, well, chiropractors don't rupture cysts. Yeah. They are actually doing something which, if anything, maybe allows any inflammation to go down. So That's awesome. we published that one in the Australian Journal just recently. The, okay. the, we have lots of strange things like that. And I love, I love, the, the, I love trying to find a way around a case that, that basically flies in the face of expectation. What people expect, what they say, the myth, the urban myths, in a sense, behind it, and then just check reality. Yeah, that that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to read that. That's terrific. I love it. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, I know you've done some work with uh, Kent Stuber, uh, who I've published with before, and, and know Kent pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. And well, you've done a lot of work with a lot of people, and I didn't know this, but uh, just before we got on today, you were telling me that you were uh, Howard Vernon's PhD advisor. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Howie's, I like Howie. He's a great guy, uh, and he's done some phenomenal. He did some phenomenal work when it wasn't popular to do it, and uh, and for that, I was very supportive. Uh, there's, there seems to be a group in. Uh, I've, I've, this is, I think, um, Kent. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to think now. I've, Brian Gleberson's also doing a PhD with me at the moment, and Mosin Kazimi did one just recently, and they're both at CMCC. All right. And, uh, and Kent's um, floating around Canada, <laughs> as he does. Um, but uh, the, the anchor point in CMCC is still my own. And uh, again, another sort of bright guy who's, who's good at keeping things on the straight and narrow. And the other one in that team is Mark Langweiler, who's uh, recently gone to um, the uh, the new course in University of Southbank in London, um, where they're setting up a course in chiropractic now uh, in the university there. Oh, but yeah, Kent's, I just heard about that. Yeah, Kent, Kent's story is quite interesting. I mean, it, well, in a sense, it came out of nowhere and then sort of started to, to ask a question about maybe, can we look at patient-centeredness in, in um in, in both you know patients and, and discuss it with the practitioners as well and, and this and, and I was going hmm interesting I've heard of that somewhere um, a colleague at the university was, was quite big in patient-centered work and so I had a discussion with her for a time about it it's quite an interesting area because it, it's one of those things that people I think assume happens 
we all talk about giving the patient uh, sufficient information to allow to empower them to get them to actually carry out your commands outside um, but do they really want it do do the patients want you to allow them to have the power or are they happy to pay you to take the power and tell them what to do and that that was something that i thought was really sort of an interesting question again not necessarily the question still came um, uh, that uh, kent came up with but it's more along the lines of my take on it because I tend to look at things, I try and look at things in strange ways and ask silly questions. And sometimes the silly ones <laughs> are the ones that should be answered. But it's, it's look more than anything else. But Kent's really, really um, careful about this work. And we did this, the, the, the initial study was a feasibility study that was a pilot study at the same time. Because it's mixed methods, you've got to sort of see if it's possible to do it. And then at the same time, you want to maybe look at the way it's done to make sure we don't actually compromise the results by asking the wrong questions. So we went through this huge, for me, huge study in the initial stages just to determine feasibility. Kent was very organized and produced this stuff um, with amazing frequency and speed. And we produced uh, a couple of articles which we've had published now on the, on the feasibility element. But the, the beautiful thing is we came up with these statistics at the end for the quantitative element that suggested we needed about 830 sets of data to uh, power it appropriately for, for a proper study. And, and I looked at that number and I thought that's 830 patients are going to fill in these forms. That's 830 forms that need to be converted into some form. And that's only a part of the study. Yeah. <laughs> so for my, for my simple brain, I went, this is, this is a nightmare. <laughs> that's a Ken lot. Just took it. Oh, yeah. He's just taken it in his stride. He's, a, he's really well organized. I don't know how he, he has a phenomenal capacity for doing things. I mean, he's editor on the journal in Canada. He runs around doing other things. I don't think he sleeps. To, I don't think he sleeps. <laughs> uh, or if he does, he does sleep, it's in another dimension. Just in case um, he's listening, hopefully he gets some sleep. Can. <laughs> <laughs> he'll be, yeah, he'll probably have a go at me for this. Um, the amazing thing is that he, he's doing that as well as everything else he's doing. But out of nowhere, um, suddenly he told me that he was doing this study with the undergraduate students, asking them about patient sensitiveness. And there was a, a, a student at the uh, at CMCC who was, who was leading on that particular one. And I went, wow, this is fantastic. I thought, well, that could be great to run it through my students. So I sort of mentioned that. And he said, oh, we've got some Norwegians on board, I think he said. And he's got another group on board and he's doing this. So I said, right, uh, got anybody from Australia? He said, no. So I said, oh, I've got a couple of people I can ask. So by the time we finished, we had a, a raft of different institutions on board. And I even got some of our students to fill it in. And... It's now, it's become this major thing. But I'm looking at him thinking, he's doing his PhD, he's editing a journal, <laughs> he has a family, and he has a practice. <laughs> yeah, amazing. But that's the person I like to be around because they, they prove they can do people. So they're doing these things, and it's really quite sort of exciting. And he's not phased by numbers. And Syl's pretty laid back. Um, and so because of that, I think it helps me keep my blood pressure down. So it's really, really positive sort of experience. And um, we are getting there. I mean, the, the initial results, we did find things out, but I think it's, it's probably best to read it and then think there's a verification coming eventually. Because when you do things in, the, in small numbers, you often get results which you go, wow, that's really fantastic. I wish it was real. 
Um, and I think we just have to wait until we get the full data set. But just before he went on holiday, he was telling me he's, he's almost got the last series of clinics in now. And so um, we're waiting to see whether we've got the full data set capability. But we're not going to be far from it. So I think it will be powered appropriately. Terrific. It, well, it'll be more to talk about in the future. <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely. I'll let him do that. But yes. <laughs> so yeah. now... There's, there's one paper I definitely want to talk about, even if it's just for a, a minute or two. And that is, um, I just found this really fascinating because all, it doesn't matter what jurisdiction chiropractors are in. It seems like there's, you know, tends to be multiple associations, uh, chiropractic associations that, uh, that's what I'm referring to. Um, mm -hmm. And you did a paper published in, again, Chiropractic and Manual Therapies, where you looked at the factors and motivations behind UK chiropractors uh, towards professional association membership. And the what I, th I thought was pretty cool, one of the findings was that almost 71% of respondents would support unification of the four chiropractic associations. Well, I, first of all, I didn't know there were four, um, but, uh, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. What, what, what were your take home points from that paper? The background on that was quite interesting. Uh, Sheena was one of the students doing her undergraduate, um, thesis. And this is one of the benefits of having, uh, an undergraduate data collecting research project module on a course. It gives people an opportunity to actually, um, get their, teeth into something that they're interested in and Sheena's background was marketing um, and she said I've got a problem we've got so many associations can we find out a bit more about why what drives people to, to, to join one in the first place which is usually one of the things that the students in the, the final year of a course are thinking which one do I join why and so they go through lists of, of ideas and so we, we basically put these ideas down and sent a survey around to find out what were the drivers for people to do these things. And yes, there's four. There's a history between each, behind each one. McTimony is essentially uh, related to the McTimony chiropractic theme, which is not really the same as chiropractic in the rest of the universe. It's a, it's a variant of it. Which, is, which has a reasonable sort of standing in the UK, similar to the form of chiropractic we teach. But there are slight differences between them. But they're all chiropractors, so we class them all the same thing. The Scottish and United uh, Chiropractic Associations are more either geographically located or they're ones which have... Uh, every, <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, rebellious streak in them. They, they tend to be people who maybe want to... Go back to the basics of chiropractic. BCA is seen as a little bit is seen as orthodox. It's the one that I think uh, many chiropractors join because it's a professional association of of a form in line with a lot of the medical associations. But they all offer different things to different people, and it all depends on what. To some extent, it's a horrible word, but people think of it as being almost a philosophical thing. It's not really philosophical. It's more you actually believe to some extent but the the issue is it either aligns with the form of chiropractic you were taught or the form of chiropractic maybe you wish to aspire to however when it comes down to it when you ask people why they join these associations usually it's practical things such as promoting the awareness of chiropractic and professional indemnity 
The other side of it, though, is that, like with lots of things, chiropractors are more together than they are apart. And so you have these people saying, well, why not just unify and make it simple? Because part of the problem across chiropractic is that the differences between chiropractors and the way they work, the way they believe and so on, and the use of terminology as a way of separating the profession, it sort of mirrors society really. But in a small profession, are you, do you have the luxury of fragmenting? And I think 71% actually see that as being an important factor. The fragmentation weakens chiropractic. It leads chiropractic into a situation where people who wish outside chiropractic to bring it down are given opportunities. And I think that's something that it's much easier to be friends and actually form a unified front than to be separate organizations or separate groups. And I think there's an element of that that came through in that question. Um, it's quite strange because I, I didn't expect it ever to be cited by anybody and needed Sheena. In fact, Sheena was quite happy when we found we had 10 people reading it. Um, but we've had three, three citations and that surprised me. <laughs> I've had papers that I thought would be more important that get very few citations, and I've never really been able to predict who cites what. So yeah. this is quite a, this has been an eye opener, really. But it, I think it, the same thing across other aspects of chiropractic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all that people are citing that. It, it seems pretty amazing. I mean, when I saw that almost 71 percent of chiropractors agreed on something, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> And uh, coming together, wow, that's that's incredible. Well, I mean, currently I'm looking at two other strange aspects. Again, through student and the undergraduate year, we we did a very quick survey of the UK profession through the Royal College of Chiropractors, where we just asked the simple questions relating to maintenance care, wellness care, define them, and do you practice them? Uh-huh. And we found that around about forty five percent practice maintenance and 45% practice maintenance and wellness and 5% on either end of the spectrum basically hate the people on the other end of the spectrum and would like to see them all burn in hell. So what you get is this sort of polarization in a small faction that make a big noise and don't try to help anything. But the pragmatic guys in the middle who are doing the job tend to just get on with it. So you get this huge population in the middle that are getting on with it and the ones on the outside edge who basically take polar opposite views and just throw stones. And I think that's something that, that if there was a way of, of breaking the system up to make it better for everybody, it's to remove some of this hyperpolarization that tends to happen on either end of the system. Um, another student who's uh, basically working in an area of, of interest, asking those difficult questions, uh, is interested in doing a PhD. So we're writing her project up because she asked the question of a a select group of European chiropractors who are 10 years in practice or more do you what do you think of treating patients who have cancer and what are the issues what are the problems what are the strengths what do you do and so on and we've developed an understanding now that the big problem with that topic is although it's admitted by the medical profession that one in two people will be touched by cancer, that population of people are almost 
treated in a covert manner by chiropractors with no, currently no coherent method of integrating with the main professions that treat the cancer itself. And it's all because of the fear that chiropractors have of being seen to be treating cancer rather than treating the patient's problems as a consequence of treatment, sedentary activity and so on related to the cancer. So there are issues here which I think we need to start looking at because we're, we're at risk of throwing away baby with bathwater if we put our head in the sand and say, we're not treating this because it's got potential connotations and somebody can slap us. If you take a responsible approach to it and say, we'd like to work with other professions to see where we best fit in the, in the multi-professional care of these people, it's a great way forward. And I think that's the way it should be, a responsible, integrated profession rather than, I think the days of, of standing on your own have gone. We need to now start looking at chiropractic becoming more integrated and showing its strengths and where it fits in best within the whole of Medicare, really. Yeah, well, I think uh, the one point that you made about cancer, as a, as a that was a terrific example. Uh, I, I don't know too many chiropractors that would say we actually are treating the cancer or somehow preventing it i'm sure there are but uh um, is that is that small percentage at the very ends of society so to speak who would say they can do that and sometimes right. it's it's maybe because they've had a person who they've treated and that person has gone through remission mm -hmm. now yes i could turn around tomorrow and give you a physiological link that would directly relate the fact that a person is feeling better with less pain and more mobility can they, and can then take part in society more, that will reduce the immune system stress, that will make the immune system work better and the protective systems can come in place and, and on certain occasions, who knows, it may help reverse problems like that. I mean, we know from the HIV AIDS epidemic that suppress the immune system and makes certain cancers more likely and we're now recognizing that a strong immune system helps protect you. So there are mechanisms you can, you can hypothesize. But For before sure. we get to that point, let's just step back a bit and say, where do we best fit in? Because it may be that chiropractic has a role, along with a lot of other modalities, to help reduce the burden of problems on the person and therefore make them more likely to go into remission. And so you, you can't say you are the only one. But some people, I think, that life experience has maybe led them to that belief. You've got to get it from a, from a perspective of selling the concept, from the perspective of science. You've got to get rid of that idea of belief and start going, okay, let's step back a bit. Is it reproducible? How can I help people? And we, because I'm in, the, in the, the area of teaching students, you've got to let the student come to that conclusion. You've got to sort of guide the student to a recognition but you can't start saying you can do everything. At the same time, you can't start saying you can do nothing. You've got to give that student that guide that gives them direction. And I think that's the key to this. The profession needs to be in that position where it can say, we recognize we have strengths, we recognize we have weaknesses. Let's address the strengths and see what we can do with them. I think that that's the way it can develop into something that actually gets recognized more for what it can do. Lots of stuff around there that we can do. Terrific. Yeah. The, you know, the other thing that I think it was just a beautiful statement you made was that this doesn't have to be something covert. Uh, it's not like people have to tiptoe around their general practitioner 
uh, or something, you know, chiropractic can help. It certainly can help their symptoms, likely their function. I mean, we certainly need data on all of this, but it's not something that we need to, you know, hush, hush, oh, you know, I'm going to see a chiropractor, you know, bad news or whatever, <laughs> who knows whatever people are thinking. It, it should be, you know, something that... There are roles for chiropractors in areas which you wouldn't expect. I once had a chat with um, a surgeon, a sort of cardiovascular surgeon who was into repairing hearts. And essentially his comment was, well, we crack open the ribs, we have a play around, we probably end up denovating the heart. And we put the person back together again. We make it all work. Everything's going well. The person then starts to get pain in the same area that they had originally, and they think they're having another heart attack. They can't possibly be having a heart attack because the heart's working better and the innovation's not there, so that's not a referred pain anymore. He said, that's something that people who can manipulate can help with. Probably related to the fact we've just cracked the rib cage open, stretched it around a bit, put it back into place as well as we think we've done it, um, and probably left a certain amount of um, stress in the system that needs to be worn out or worn in. And that's where a chiropractor can potentially help. So there's areas like this associated with professions like surgery, associated with it, where people have often in the past considered it to be an us and them. I was going to say that's the sort of area that we could maybe, you know, that, that people really need to look at with respect to building proper ties, building research to prove to people that there's a potential benefit. But it's a lot of this sort of co-work. It's working with people on the patient. So it's developing these ties with other professions to see where chiropractic can offer benefit in addition to what that other profession is offering. Yeah. Exciting area of research to couple these things and then see what the outcomes are like. I'm sure they would be better. That's my bias, but <laughs> well, I'm heavily biased. <laughs> yeah, but no, you don't have to be biased. I think it's, it's, it's obvious. Everybody, everybody, I think, recognizes that if you work with somebody on a problem, often you see it from two different angles. And those two different angles give you a greater insight than your individual angle. And I feel that, that sometimes that's the bit that's missing. It, the chiropractic profession tends to work in isolation. Where it works with other professions, there's huge gains to be made. And I think that's the way that we need to look at it for the future. You can make gains on your own, but you can make bigger gains if you embed yourself with others and develop uh, as a team approach towards patients, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, speaking about uh, gaining, um, one way that we can gain is to have more science. And so I, I asked this question of everybody who's on the podcast, and it is, uh, what advice would you give uh, to chiropractors or students who wish to become scientists or researchers in the future? Uh, this, yeah, I could, I could use the usual flippant one, which is don't bother, it's not paid very well. Um, alternatively, I think the key is that, that everybody who does a chiropractic degree, if it's a degree, will have some science in it. And you'll be taught, or you should be taught, the basics of scientific investigation. The biggest basic can't be taught, and that is an interest in something, an inquiring mind. You've got to ask the questions you asked when you were one year old and two year old. What's that? What does it do? Why does it do that? And I think if you do that and then want to answer and you off, you want to answer those questions rather than just asking them for the sake of asking them, then you'll learn more about the system and then you'll learn all the things you don't know. 
And I think that's the key. As soon as you realize all the things you don't know, you realize how many questions there are to ask. You pick something you can do, slowly develop it. The best thing to do, though, is often to become associated with somebody who has an interest in what you're doing and then develop a team because research is a really difficult thing. I'll have times when you get really depressed and I'll have times when you're really high. And if you're bipolar, then the two tend to follow each other. But the, the key with it is that you need to have somebody there to keep you on the straight and narrow and ask those questions when you don't ask them. And you need somebody there to support you when you're in a downer because nothing's worked for weeks on end. Because we always ask the question, it didn't work, why? We never ask the question, it did work, why? And I think that's one of the issues that if you're interested, you know, you can easily do. But if you want questions or you want to know or you want to have answers, every institution has people like me. Every institution that teaches has people like me in it. You just have to find one and talk to them because they are often helpful and facilitative and will help you pull forward and actually learn how to do research if you wanted to do it. But we'll try and answer the questions. I mean, I get ex-students of mine coming back on sort of an irregular basis asking questions and wanting to take part in research. And you just have to basically facilitate them because people come up with their own ideas, things they've, they're wondering about, and that's it. So there's a burden on the person who's the researcher to help people in practice. And there's a burden on the people in practice to get out there and talk to people who are doing research and then ask questions. There's nothing to stop you becoming a scientist or researcher apart from yourself. Terrific advice. I like so many things about what you've said today. Just, uh, I'm going to need to listen to this myself a few times <laughs> to get all of Sorry, the, no. get all the, no, that's terrific. That's exactly what I like. So <laughs> thanks for all of the, uh, uh, great discussion. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and hopefully we can do this again sometime. No problem. We didn't talk about the RCTs and, uh, I think I need a drink now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. We'll we'll make sure to talk about the RCTs uh, the next time, and maybe we can talk about some of this uh, latest research that you're doing as well. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely yeah. When I when I've managed to motivate the people to help me write the papers, and there's about seven in the, in process at the moment, then I'll uh, definitely uh, start pushing the buttons and uh, getting back. Thanks, Doctor McCarthy. That's no problem. Take care, Dean. Thank you very okay. much. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone, and listening to my interview with Dr. Peter McCarthy. Hope you have a great day. Bye for now.